You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Yonatan Grad. The Melvin J. and Geraldine L. Glimsher Assistant Professor of Immunology and Infectious Diseases and a faculty member in the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics. This call was recorded at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Tuesday, June 9th. Dr. Grad, do you have any opening remarks? Uh, I'll actually just um, jump right into the questions today. Okay, great. First question. Thank you, uh, as always, for doing this. Um, so speaking to one of the uh, topics that you said you wanted to talk about today, um, it looks like the virus is now spreading into small towns and rural areas, and um, obviously many more locations than several weeks ago when we kind of hit peak on new cases. So. Um, I would just like you to talk about that a bit, what, what you see happening in terms of the number of locations of spread, uh, where it's spreading, and, and what that's going to mean in the coming weeks. So uh, I think this gets to a, a critical point to keep in mind uh, about uh, um, the pandemic, and that is that we should expect to see spread wherever there are susceptible individuals. Uh, it takes, um, or it, the, the, the timing of entry will vary depending on what the connections are between communities, uh, but we should expect to see that the virus will go wherever there are susceptible people. Um, so it, it's, it's not a surprise that uh, smaller populations perhaps communities that are less linked to the major metropolitan centers um, uh, are seeing uh, kind of somewhat delayed uh, appearance of, um, uh, of COVID-19. Um, but it's not, you know, it's, it, it's again, uh, kind of in keeping with expectation um, that they will see it, right? Or that they are seeing it. It's just um, to the point of it being hyper-local, uh, once it gets in, uh, we'll then expect to see spread, but the timing of entry depends on a variety of factors, including the extent of connection to other communities. Um, and, and how, okay, so some of the early uh, outbreaks, well, some of the worst early outbreaks obviously were in um, New York City and other places where you had lots and lots of cases and that drove that initial uh, peak. We've got a bit of a trough happening on new cases now as this spreads out into rural areas, um, what do you see happening over the next few weeks in terms of uh, case count? Are we, are we gonna get back up to that level we were at before, maybe get beyond it, or, or maybe can we hold steady here? Yeah, all of this is really gonna depend on um, what choices each jurisdiction, each community makes about its mitigation efforts. The cumulative, uh, kind of aggregate experience, I should say, the, the aggregate over, you know, the entire country uh, is um, a reflection of all of the different individual choices that communities are making about their mitigation efforts. So in some places, we're seeing uh, the decision to lift uh, community lockdown mitigation efforts, and we should expect to see uh, to the extent that there remain sufficient susceptible individuals in those populations to sustain um, uh, epidemic spread, we will start to see a resurgence. 
in some time. Um, you know, it's hard to predict exactly when because it's not clear what the contact patterns will be in those populations or how much opportunity the virus will have to transmit. But with removal of lockdown in populations where that's happening, we will start to see a resurgence. Similarly, in those places that are now starting to see their first real outbreaks or their first encounters with uh, um, COVID-19, uh, the dynamics in those individual places will also uh, depend on what measures they decide to um, uh, take on for mitigation. And then what we see at the country level, well, at, at any kind of geographic aggregate, so county, state, region, country, all of that will depend on um, uh, really what, what each of these populations are deciding to do, uh, or is deciding to do uh, for, for, um, for, for control. So it's hard to give an overall forecast that really depends as it has all the time uh, on um, uh, community decisions and um, mitigation efforts and, and, and the timing. Right. So one of the lessons we learned um, again and again is the sooner you initiate mitigation efforts in lockdown, uh, the fewer cases you'll see in that initial period, but right? you don't get quite the same uh, um, burst in, uh, in cases. So, um, you know, the, the, the timing and the nature of the interventions in each of these locations will help shape uh, the experience of, uh, of, of the virus, but really at an aggregate, it's going to be all of these different experiences put together. Thank you for that. Yeah. Next question. Thank you for, for doing this. Um, we're seeing in Massachusetts uh, this baffling picture in which we don't seem to be using our full testing capacity. And I'm wondering what your analysis is of what's going on with that. In particular, should we be doing more testing of asymptomatic people? And I think most importantly, do you have any message for the public about testing and getting tested at this point? Yeah, I saw those numbers too. Uh, and um, uh, also uh, was, um, uh, a bit surprised by um, the extent to which we're, we're not using uh, all of our testing capacity. And I think that that will be something for both the public and public health authorities to, 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 uh, to explore more fully. I think that uh, expanded testing and bringing people out to get tested is something that we should figure out uh, how to do. Um, there are particular communities, for example, where we've seen from serologic testing that uh, there's been a, a, a large cumulative incidence where, um, you know, for example, in Chelsea, there was an um, initial study suggesting a large fraction of the population had antibodies indicating exposure. You know, those, those kinds of populations or others where there are indications of viral spread, those are ones where it would be great to really uh, try to maximize our testing capacity by looking um, uh, for, uh, um, for cases, whether it's individuals who think they may be exposed or as you suggest, looking um, uh, 
um, at potentially asymptomatic individuals to, to try to identify cases. This is also, it seems, uh, a great opportunity for um, you know, the, the contact tracing efforts to uh, um, not only identify cases, uh, but identify their contacts and ideally test them too. So with the, with the excess uh, or seemingly unused capacity, um, we should try to think about how to focus efforts on expanding testing. Yeah, but so then I guess at the individual level, would you say to people, and if so, to whom you should consider getting tested, even if you don't have symptoms? Yeah, I think um, it, it's going to be, I, I would say, um, I, I'm curious about uh, what the distribution is of that unused testing capacity across the state. I, I don't know how, whether it's focused in particular communities. Um, so, for example, you know, is it that Western Massachusetts has a lot of unused uh, uh, testing capacity, or is it uh, other communities, or is it evenly distributed? So, I want to have a better sense of exactly how that's uh, um, where testing um, capacity is not being as heavily used. That would be one one piece I'd be interested in. Uh, and then, in terms of how to uh, best use it, I think it would be before going to people and saying. Uh, anyone should come in and, and get tested, uh, although I hope that eventually we can get there. Uh, I first want to get a better sense of from hospitalization data, uh, seroprevalence data, and other types of surveillance, uh, and understanding which communities do we consider uh, are right now at, at highest risk or are uh, likely undergoing um, uh, uh, cases and use use that information to guide where we should expand testing. So it's it's not uh, quite something that would be a, a at least right now uh, where I could say um, without knowing more a blank recommendation. I'd have to if you were asking me what I would do, uh, I'd want to know a little bit more before uh, directing particular communities to try to increase testing, um, including of asymptomatic individuals. Thank you. Next question. Yeah, hi, um, thanks, thanks uh, for doing this. Um, so I know um, basically the situation in the US right now, and you were kind of getting at this in, the, in response to the first question, you know, some areas are seeing cases and hospitalizations go up, some are, are seeing them go down, and that's just probably how it's gonna be for a while, just like it's all gonna be localized. But I, I wonder if there's anything that's happening now that's sort of catching your eye or, or you're taking particular notice of. Uh, well, you know, the, the, a lot of my concern is around um, what's going to happen next. <laughs> you know, we, we're, we are seeing uh, some community see a rise in cases. Uh, how are we going to manage when um, uh, the next round of mitigation efforts? Um, uh, it's still not entirely clear to me um, whether there's the political and social will that could sustain um, another round of uh, community lockdown. So uh, if not, uh, what, what are we going to do? Um, as, and as communities start to open up and goes through, go through phase one, two, three of reopening, 
um, what are going to be the triggers uh, for um, introducing uh, restrictions again, and, and which restrictions. It seems like um, there's still work to be done to understand whether we have to return to uh, community quarantine or whether there are more nuanced directed interventions that could achieve similar reductions in virus spread. Uh, can, we, can we do a better job um, of uh, our um, mitigation efforts? Uh, can we design for potentially uh, mitigation efforts that are less economically costly, uh, but similarly effective in reducing transmission. I think those are some of the challenges still ahead of us and ones that are going to be increasingly urgent uh, as opening um, is, is, we see it in many different places and as people start um, engaging in more domestic travel, potentially reintroducing virus from different communities, uh, I think you know, we're, we're going to have to really um, uh, um, develop good protocols for both continued surveillance and then response to uh, rising numbers of cases. And, and when you're like, um, I guess, assessing the situation, maybe in a given state or given community even, what are some of the, the metrics that you would look to like to know if you know a certain threshold is being reached in terms of maybe new implementation measures or to say that actually things are looking okay yeah i think i think that that um the, the ones we would uh like to keep track of um include uh the numbers of cases and this gets to uh, uh carrie's question earlier um you know can can we expand community monitoring um, for cases uh, widely enough to be able to really get a sense of what the burden uh, of disease is, not just for symptomatic, but asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic cases too. Uh, then um, looking at hospitalization rates uh, and looking at uh, um, uh, ICU uh, use, um, that I think is, is gonna continue to be a key measure, um, particularly as, Hospitals tried to um, emerge from their um, uh, surge efforts um, and return to a kind of more standard practice. Um, how much ICU capacity will they have and, and uh, how much of it is going to be dedicated to COVID-19 patients? Um, so uh, general community level of disease, hospitalization rates, uh, ICU use rates, uh, deaths as well, um, understanding where uh, um, those deaths are occurring, so really having a sense of uh, which populations are being affected. Uh, all of these, I think, are going to be, if we had dashboards, those would be uh, one, one important part of it. Another is uh, being able to put that in the context of what has come before. Um, so to know where on the curve are we, or what is our effective reproductive number. Um, so having some sense of how much transmission is taking place. Uh, that includes having an understanding of the cumulative incidence so far. So what, uh, what fraction of a population has been exposed uh, and might have 
uh, antibodies, um, ideally that confers some kind of protection. Right? But uh, so having an understanding of, of what the cumulative incidence has been in a population, I think will also be valuable. So I'll, if, if I had my druthers, <laughs> uh, th those are the, it would be great to get uh, all of that data really to make the uh, most informed choices um, on uh, when uh, and when to introduce uh, mitigation efforts and what kind. Thank you. Next question. Uh, hi, Yonatan. Uh, thanks again for doing this. Uh, just to follow up in that same area, I'm wondering, are there any specific states that concern you? Um, uh, you know, I'd have to check the, <laughs> the, the New York Times map uh, to look at which, where, where the, what the trends have been um, in, in cases uh, across various states. I, I'd say, you know, I, I, I worry about all of them, uh, frankly, <laughs> continues to be, um, uh, I think we're, we're, really, we're really still um, in early stages, well, I would say maybe, maybe better to say, uh, you know, we've got a long, long way ahead of us. Uh, and even places that um, have been uh, opening up or are starting to open up, um, I, I, where they've seen a decrease in cases, I, I worry that about uh, seeing resurgence as we start to open up and being prepared to handle that. And then other places where they're seeing rising cases, um, uh, you know, what are the, what are the responses going to be, you know, places uh, like Florida, for example, where it seems like um, over the past few days, uh, um, I think today it was a little bit less, but for the prior four or five days, um, cases were, new cases were over uh, a thousand each day, and that was the first time, I think, in the, the pandemic that that had been the case. So, um, yeah, I think every every place has uh, has has its challenges ahead, and those challenges are going to um, uh, going to to persist for some time. Um, I think one one point here um, that has been brought up regularly is that again, it seems uh, strange that it is uh, state by state, um, and that we lack uh, um, you know kind of a, a federal policy uh, and our kind of united approach uh, across states, but um, so it is uh, for now. And that means that uh, really places um, both individual states and then, and then regions uh, of uh, adjacent states um, will have to uh, work together as they see um, whether their first uh, rise in cases or a resurgence after initial declines. How big a political problem do you think this may be versus a epidemiological and public health problem, or are they the same? Uh, I'm I'm no political scientist, so uh, it's hard for me to speak to um, the extent to which this is um, a, a political problem. But clearly, you know that that, that there is an intersection of politics, economics, uh, social science, and public health. Uh, all, all of these forces are um, swirling around as people try to decide what to do in their communities. 
Um, you know, they're, they're uh, from the protests to uh, keep things open to um, not wearing masks to um, what seems like a polarized, a politically polarized response. Um, it's, it's uh, you know, there are clearly uh, forces at work um, in each of these sectors um, um, that are shaping responses uh, state by state or community by community. Um, but how much uh, weight each of those sectors has, uh, again, probably varies uh, community by community, but it is certainly playing a role um, uh, as, as we see. Thank you. Next question. Hi, thanks. Uh, sort of following up is, have you seen any states with a plan on what to do if cases start rising or if there's a second wave, uh, you know, and does that concern you if you haven't seen anything? Uh, I haven't done a diligent read through of every state's plan. So I, I can't speak directly to um, what, what everyone is uh, planning to do other than uh, retreat from, um, you know, a, from start subtracting numbers, right? Go from phase three to phase two or phase two to phase one. Uh, but how well those uh, efforts will work um, and, and what will happen um, in, in those circumstances, uh, uh, I'm not sure. Um, we really have a good idea. Um, I, I haven't seen uh, much in the way of uh, modeling to be able to, to, to tell us that. And, and what the, again, what, the, what are the triggers for um, for moving backwards, what are the basis for those triggers? I think um, you know th those are all going to be important questions. And again, it's all keyed to being able to do uh, sufficient surveillance um, of the types that I had mentioned before. Um, you know, we're, we're going to need to have good metrics on the basis of which to make these decisions about re-implementing mitigation efforts of whatever kind um, and you know subtracting the numbers from those phases but uh, um, yeah so that that uh, but, but what exactly the, the, the triggers are uh, how they get determined and how good our surveillance is in order to be able to have a nimble response uh, I think is is uh, yet to be seen so uh, I think a lot of this will uh, will play out uh, over the next uh, um, over the next few weeks. I mean, with the the rush to reopen, I mean, do you do you feel like states might not necessarily be willing to admit that cases are rising and that they might need to hit pause or even go backwards? I I, I hope not. I, I hope um, uh, that there's not only uh, an admission but a recognition. You know as we've seen uh, in some, you know, there were two papers published in Nature yesterday that, that made an argument for how many lives were saved by these mitigation efforts. I, I hope there's a recognition that, uh, um, uh, that, they're, that they're useful and that, um, mm -hmm. and then it's really a, a question of um, not, instead of not recognizing uh, the cases, trying to figure out a better way to navigate between um, the public health urgency uh, and the urgency from the 
uh, economy and other spheres. So really trying to figure out how to um, uh, not continue to throttle uh, the economy um, uh, and not see these as, as in opposition to one another, uh, but figure out uh, a, a way to navigate through those challenges where, again, perhaps we have uh, more, uh, um, more nuanced or directed uh, mitigation efforts. Thanks. Hi, please go ahead. Hi, um, just following up on some of these questions about, you know, new new mitigation efforts. Um, so there's been a lot more learned, right, about how this virus spreads, you know, close contact and prolonged exposure and super spreading events and so on. So I wonder what you think all that suggests for the best way to proceed when cases do start going up again? Like, do we need widespread lockdowns anymore or could they be more targeted? And if so, um, how? Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly the right question. I don't have an answer yet, uh, but that's what uh, I know many people are working on trying to answer. What are the types of mitigation efforts that were most successful uh, in reducing spread? Uh, that's exactly the question that I think many people are working on using a variety of different types of data um, to, uh, and then um, various methods to try to infer. Um, to, you know, to, there are still big unanswered questions. What really, for example, is the role of kids in transmission? Uh, could we uh, return to um, uh, return kids to school um, without much in the way of impact? Or is that something that would accelerate transmission? That seems to me, you know, of course, a critical question, one we would love to be able to, um, uh, to answer. Uh, and, and through those kinds of efforts, really improve um, the directed mitigation uh, uh, um, efforts. But, but I think it's... it's um, we, I don't think we have great answers yet. Uh, I know a lot of people are working on trying to figure those out uh, and hopefully we'll get more information soon. This is a point actually uh, that um, a couple of colleagues and I wrote about in a piece in the Washington Post now uh, months ago that um, we're using um, uh, the, uh, in some ways the natural experiments that we've seen across the country where people People instituted different levels of mitigation efforts uh, at different times, um, we could start to look, use uh, mobility data from cell phones, for example, um, to look at how did they change interactions, how did they change mobility, and what uh, impact that had on the number of cases uh, and ultimately the number of deaths in each population, and use that to use these kinds of natural experiments to help learn about what mitigation efforts were, uh, were, were most effective. And I think that work uh, it continues, um, and hopefully we will, uh, we will learn more. So for example, the, the two nature papers I mentioned uh, look at kind of the overall lockdown, but hopefully we will start to see um, uh, work coming out about um, uh, more directed efforts too. Uh, next question. Hi, thank you so much for taking my question. 
Um, your colleagues at Harvard Children's uh, posted a study in pre-press yesterday using satellite imagery to indicate that the outbreak in Wuhan might have started earlier than has been previously suggested. Um, I don't mean to put you in the awkward position of commenting on your colleagues' research, but can you talk about what, if any, significance these findings have and how they might be used to help shape our response to the pandemic? Uh, I. I haven't seen that, so uh, I don't think I can. <laughs> I have an easy way out of that question because I haven't, I haven't actually seen the study, so I, I don't think I can comment on it uh, until I've had a chance to review it. Okay. Sorry. No, it's okay. Can you talk in general, though, about whether, you know, why the timing of the start of the outbreak in Wuhan might be important? Uh, well, I, I, I think that it's. Um, you know, having an understanding of uh, the timing in relation to, uh, you know, the, the, the cases and the mitigation efforts will help us understand uh, more about what the impact was of those particular mitigation efforts. Um, and again, helping to, to you know, contribute to um, the expanding database of uh, uh, which mitigation efforts and of what kind really had impact, what kind of impact on, uh, on the transmission of, and the, the spread of the virus. Um, but um, uh, yeah, I, I would have to, I, you know, it's hard for me to say more about what they're getting at in that study without looking at it. So I, I would want to get a sense of, of what they said. Um, but yeah, uh, it, sounds, it sounds like an intriguing study. Fair enough. Thank you very much. Next question. Sorry, sorry. Who was it at Children's? I'm going to just put it on my list of things to look at. Do you know who the authors were? Um, <laughs> I can tell you in a second. Uh, let's see. Uh, uh, Benjamin Rader, uh, uh, Yao Barnoon, Lauren Goodwin and John S. Brownstein. Okay, great, thank you. You're welcome. Oh, I see, I'm sorry. I, let me just quickly say something. Uh, I, I just looked it up and it says like that they were, it may have been spreading as early as August. Uh, one, one quick comment on that. that. That's something I can address very quickly. I'm not, without having read the study, uh, I, I, um, I think it would be interesting to see, I need to, to read it, but, uh, um, as far as I'm aware, the uh, analyses of the genetics of the virus really put its origins in the late fall, so November, December time period. Uh, and I believe that was done with uh, fairly good confidence. So it seems uh, like it would run counter to the genetic data to suggest that it was spreading long before then. Uh, but again, I'd have to read and see how those two things might, uh, uh, how, how they try to uh, um, reconcile those two things. So I think it would just be interesting to try to, to uh, um, take one piece of evidence that suggests that the virus really started in late November, December, that's the genetics and their observations. So uh, you know, that's, that's uh, my, my very, uh, first early preliminary impression. 
Thank you. Um, next question. Um, curveball to you, although um, I'm hoping you can uh, answer this one. Uh, do you think, what, what effect do you think summer uh, heat and humidity may or may not have now uh, on this virus, given everything we know now? Yeah, we still don't have a great sense of the role of seasonality. Um, in work that we published in Science, uh, you know, now a month or so ago, um, we looked at the seasonality of uh, the common cold causing beta coronaviruses, and it seems like using, again, data from, from US surveillance systems, it looked like there was uh, um, some seasonality where there was more uh, uh, transmission transmitted more easily in the winter and, and there was a diminishment in transmission in the summer. Um, that may still be the case with this uh, coronavirus. We don't, we don't yet know for sure. Um, uh, but it's not, I think one, one important point is even if there is seasonal variation, the extent of that seasonal variation, it's not, it's not an on-off where there is transmission in the winter and there isn't transmission in the summer. It would just, even if it has a, uh, uh, even if it impacted transmission and lowered it, there's still, I think, enough, uh, uh, it's transmissible enough that we would expect to see spread. And in fact, you know, the, the rising cases in Florida uh, um, should be an indication that um, certainly this virus can spread in warm, humid climates. So perhaps, uh, you know, we'll have a little bit of a reprieve um, if there is seasonality and diminished spread in the summer, uh, but it's certainly not turning off spread, uh, as we can see uh, already um, by what's happening in, in Florida and other places. And, and really, as we knew, uh, even months ago, when there was spread in Singapore at a time when Singapore had temperatures uh, in the, the, the 80s and 90s. Yeah, yeah. Uh, real quick follow, Ed, just because I know this will be something people will uh, ask in their heads and can relate to. Um, we've seen here in Arizona and elsewhere, um, uh, flu cases fall off as they usually do, um, even as uh, coronavirus, COVID-19 cases are rising and we've got 100 degree temperatures. So clearly this is not having a seasonal effect anywhere near what happens with the flu, right? That's, um, it, it, there, there are a couple of things there. So it's, um, so we know for flu that absolute humidity is a climactic factor uh, that, um, that influences its transmission. But with flu, there are also very different numbers of um, susceptible individuals there's it's been flu influenza has been spreading through populations for a very long time and so there are is population immunity as well whereas for SARS-CoV-2 uh, right it's it's they're, they're basically it's a it's a new pathogen so they're really uh, at least in populations that haven't seen uh, um, the virus yet, uh, there's still, and even in those that have, there's still huge fractions of the population that are totally susceptible. And so uh, um, uh, that contributes to the effective reproductive number. So for flu, that would be even 
that's decreased by uh, the extent of uh, uh, immunity in a population, but in the absence of that, we continue to see uh, uh, and would expect to see less of an impact for, for, um, for SARS-CoV-2. Uh, but yes, absolutely. And that gets to another point that, um, you know, the flip side of a decrease in summer, should it be going on, um, is that we would expect to see an increase once we enter into fall and winter. Uh, and that does coincide with when we know influenza season picks up too, um, uh, or influenza transmission will pick up. Uh, and this is one of the things that I think everyone has identified even from the outset, even from the first uh, uh, spread of um, SARS-CoV-2 uh, as, as a point of concern. Um, if we encounter uh, in the fall and winter uh, coincident epidemics of uh, both uh, COVID-19 and influenza, uh, we're going to have um, uh, quite a challenge ahead of us uh, um, in, um, you know, and it is something that uh, as we think about mitigation efforts for SARS-CoV-2, we have to not uh, only think about what we're doing for that virus, but also what we can be doing for influenza. Uh, and I, I think this really underscores um, the importance of expanding to uh, as much as possible influenza vaccination uh, to try to limit the amount of, of flu that's going to be in our communities uh, at the same time that those communities will also be dealing with COVID-19. Excellent, thank you. That's uh, some, some points that I had not run across before, so very helpful. Um, really quick, going back to what you were talking about with influenza and also uh, the coronavirus, how do those two overlap um, with symptoms and also with uh, hospitalizations and the resources that they require? So um, the symptoms uh, as, as respiratory viruses can be somewhat similar. Uh, flu and uh, COVID-19 uh, can cause cough and shortness of breath, fever, um, COVID-19 has a, a few additional um, or different uh, um, characteristics that uh, loss of uh, the sense of, of smell and taste uh, is distinct. Um, so, you know, that, that is uh, um, one thing that, that um, separates them. But uh, in terms of being able to cause severe disease, both seem, seem quite capable. Um, the uh, mortality rates uh, for um, the two viruses, um, uh, you know, is, this has been a point of, of uh, contention, uh, but it seems at least for uh, SARS-CoV-2, um, uh, we're seeing uh, infection fatality rates uh, that are higher than for seasonal influenza, um, but both are, are serious. Uh, um, respiratory viruses that um, uh, can cause uh, clearly um, a large amount uh, of disease and really challenge our healthcare infrastructure. Uh, I mean, you know, when we hit flu season in bad flu years, it really taxes uh, the hospitals and, and other uh, um, uh, healthcare providers. So 
concern about having a bad influenza year together with uh, SARS-CoV-2 when a large part of the population may still remain susceptible and we could see many cases, uh, I think is, is uh, um, uh, a possible scenario that is, uh, is pretty frightening. Thank you. Do you have any other comments you'd like to make for today? No, thank you for the good questions. This concludes the June 9th press conference.